As we continue to worship uh, the Lord this morning, we recognize we're in the middle of the Advent uh, season. That word Advent meaning appearing, uh, coming, arrival of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, religious or non-religious, it's a very festive uh, time of year. Uh, lights are up all around us. Perhaps you've put lights up on your house. There's, of course, the music of, of the season, uh, decorations filling shops and homes. Uh, but as Christians, we, during this time of year, often recognize there's something largely missing, uh, which is the celebration and worship uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Uh, it's captured well in the title of, of an article in Religion Magazine. Uh, quote, more Americans celebrating a secular Christmas. Uh, secular Christmas. Sounds like an oxymoron. Uh, and celebration of what? Uh, which leads me to this question. If you were asked to describe what Christmas is about, what would you say? What words would you use? Further, if you were asked to identify a passage of Scripture in, in the Bible uh, to describe the heart of the Christian message, what text would you go to to describe that? Perhaps John chapter 1 would be a, a, a favorite. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and uh, dwelt among us. Or perhaps the appearing of the angel to the shepherds in Luke 2, which was our call to worship this morning. Fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. One of my favorites is 1 Timothy chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. These are all excellent passages, but if you were pressed further and asked, well, what is this Christ like? What is His character like? What does He come to do? What is the work that He does? What's the ministry that's set before Him? How would you respond? What text would you go to to capture these things? It seems to me that some of the best descriptions that we have in single passages of who the Messiah is, what kind of character He has, and what He comes to do are in these servant songs of Isaiah that we're considering. These servant poems, four of them, from Isaiah 40 to 55, that portion of the book of Isaiah. We considered a couple weeks ago the first servant song, Isaiah 42, that He distributes righteousness, justice to, to the nations. Now we look at a second servant poem or song, Isaiah 49. So if you turn to Isaiah 49, it's verses 1 through 16. Let's give our attention to the Word of God. Isaiah 49, 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord. 
and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene, southern Egypt. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Perhaps you've heard the saying, uh, when you're knee-deep in alligators, it's hard to remember that your goal was to drain uh, the swamp. I remember when our family, well, Shelly and I, first moved to Orlando so I could attend uh, seminary. For the first couple of weeks, I can still remember it uh, right now, um, as I would go outside for runs for exercise, my eyes were peeled along every ditch, any high grass at all, just anticipating a gator uh, to strike, was there three years and never saw one. Well, God's people in Isaiah's day did not have their eyes peeled. They, they were swimming in a swamp of sin. As I've noted, it was a low point in uh, the history of the people of, of God. They had abandoned the Lord in many ways. Their worship was corrupt. They paid little attention to the commandments of God. And they were not a light to the nations. To sense God's view of His covenant people at the time, in chapter 1, verse 14, it says, I'm weary. The Lord says of His people, I'm weary of you. I'm weary of your works. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. The larger situation can be summed up in verse 9 of the first chapter. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, 
We should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. It's striking how far the Lord will allow His people to spiral or slide, individually or corporately. It happened in Isaiah's day. And when the people of God are on the verge of of exile, as was the case in Isaiah's day, or as the prophet is looking down the corridors of time to speak uh, to those who would find themselves in exile in Babylon, like Daniel and others, which is partly the context of chapters 40 and following, the text that we have uh, have before us. When, when God's people are despairing or in a really hard place or a low point or a discouraging circumstance, what do the people of God need at that time? And Isaiah 49 gives us an answer to that. It seems to me they need a new set of eyes and a new set of ears. They need to see what they have not been seeing to hear what they've not been hearing. To to give attention in their lives to what they have been failing to give attention to. That's what we have here in Isaiah 49 in this servant song. Two voices emerge in this text that I've read. Verse 1 is one voice, and then the second voice comes in verse 7. The first voice is in verses 1 through 6, and it is the voice of the servant himself. The servant speaks in the opening of the chapter. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you people, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. Verse 3, And He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, as you read this at first glance, the servant appears to be the nation of Israel, the corporate people. And indeed, through Isaiah and elsewhere in the Scriptures, Israel, the nation, is called a servant of the Lord. But notice verse 5. And now the Lord, Yahweh, says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. You see, the servant of verse 3, you are my servant Israel, is a single figure called to restore, called to heal, called to bring back Israel, the corporate nation or people of God. Israel, the servant, the Messiah, is called to restore and to heal and to reconcile the people of God. So it is a ministry in part of reconciliation and how central that is to the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. As as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself, not counting our trespasses against us. But the success of the servant's task uh, does not come by him sort of lording over, if you will, or by the mere exercise of his power. He is Lord, and he has all power, but his success comes through suffering. We will see this all the more uh, next week and Christmas morning in the next two servant songs. But as you progress through the four servant songs, the suffering of the servant increases more and more and more 
till you get to chapter 53, the fourth servant song, that he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. A man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. But even here in our text, we see the servant in verse 4. He says, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. It's because of Israel's stubbornness. Their poor response that the servant feels this sense of defeat and frustration. The servant suffers because of the rebellion and the sin of the people of God. But not only will the servant bring God's people back, a time of restoration, his person is so glorious, his grace is so deep, that his mercy extends beyond the covenant people to the nations. The nations shall come to him. We see in verse 6, he says, It is too light a thing, the Lord says of him, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That is part of our calling in reflecting the light of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was God's original design in Genesis 1 and 2, in creating Adam and Eve, giving them that mandate to multiply and have dominion, to multiply the image of God to cover the face of the earth. It was the promise to Abraham that through him and through his seed, all the nations shall be blessed. A light for the nations. That's you and me. Yet most importantly, while you and I are in view here as those among the nations, where's the spotlight? It's not on you. It's not on me. It is on this servant. The verses that I've read are are filled with hope. It is a message of hope. Restoration is mentioned. Light to the nations. Salvation to the ends of the earth. But to know this hope our eyes, spiritually, must be upon the servant. Why? Because when our eyes are too fixed upon ourselves, it often, usually, leads to things like anxiety, despair, depression, pride, shame. One of the shortest and yet most impactful ministries that I think we have recorded in church history is the ministry... Uh, of Robert Murray McShane. I've mentioned him in times past. He was born in 1813. He ministered in his early uh, 20s through uh, age 30. He died of typhus at age 30, early in his 30th year of of life. Ministered in Dundee, Scotland uh, from 1835 to 43. Seven or eight years. 6,000 people would attend his funeral just to give a sense of kind of impact that he had. But he would go through two very serious bouts of, of, of depression. Now, he became so ill that his congregation sent him back home to his folks in Edinburgh. And from there, and later in travels, he would write letters to his congregation. And he's known for saying many things, but one thing he said was this, for every one look at yourself, you need to take ten looks 
at Christ. For every one look at yourself, you need to take ten looks at Christ. We are surrounded by a culture absorbed with the self. Promotion of self, ambitions of self. The voice of the servant breaks forth to direct our attention to Him. His voice, His heart, His mission, His character. Listen to me, He says. Certainly pointing us, among other places, to the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, when Jesus was transformed, His face shining like the sun, His clothes dazzling white, and a voice, God's voice breaks forth. This is My Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen, listen to Him. And now the servant here says, listen to Me. Why give attention in prayer and meditation upon His Word? Why give attention to this servant? Because true fundamental change in life, transformation in life, only comes by seeing, hearing, and beholding this servant. This passage, in part, is about change. There's restoration mentioned, reconciliation, those in darkness seeing light, those hungering being fed, those hurting being comforted. It's striking, but true. Becoming the kind of people the Lord intended for us to be does not come by bettering ourselves or becoming a bit more moral, or a bit more thoughtful of others. It comes by identifying with the servant who suffers. Apart from the cross of Jesus Christ, fundamentally we cannot change. It only comes by identifying with the suffering servant, being crucified with Him, that then we can become who we were intended to be. The people that we were intended to be and are intended to be is contained in Him. If you want to know yourself, it is in Jesus Christ, that man. C.S. Lewis uh, put it this way. He said, think of salt, the ingredient. He said, a person who didn't know anything about salt would never think that something with such a strong taste would do anything except kill the taste in anything else. You ever taken just, I won't say a tablespoon, just take a teaspoon of salt and eat it by itself. Lewis says, yet we know that salt does the opposite. It brings out the flavor and best version of the food or dish that it goes into. So it is with Christ. It is only when you allow yourself to be drawn into Him that you become a real person. That person that God intended. If we are going to be the people God intends, the the church God desires and intends, we must go to the servant. Be found in the servant. Found in Him. That's our fundamental identity. It's not our age or sex or occupation or ethnicity. It's in the servant. That first voice, the voice of the servant, is a voice of hope. Hope. And then there's a second voice. This is the voice of the Lord, Yahweh, in verse 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord, verse 7, again in 8, thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I've answered you, in a day of salvation I've, I've helped you. This is the voice of comfort. 
Voice of hope. Voice of comfort. Prisoners are set free. Those in darkness see light. Those hungry and thirsty are filled. Those wandering are led and guided. And then verse 13, For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. We're we're in a season of the year uh, where many efforts are made to extend comfort and compassion in all kinds of ways. and Wonderfully so. Rightly so. Uh, This comfort, however, is the comfort that God uh, gives. It's the comfort that God brings to His people and of which His people are to extend uh, to others. We remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Here's another comforting thought, a comforting picture. It comes from words of McShane again. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a thousand enemies. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room. Many are the things that will fill us with fear or anxiety. We might overwork ourselves out of fear God may not provide. Worried about where the culture is headed. We might remain silent out of fear of rejection. We might have fear of pain or death. But Christ is praying for you. Remember what He said to to Peter. Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. In Hebrews, we learn of Christ as uh, our mediator, intercessor, intercedes for us. Romans 8, the Spirit prays for us. We know uh, prayer is powerful. The Scripture says that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. How powerful and effective are the prayers of Christ? Your Savior prays for you. There's a, there's a secret spiritual power at work behind and for us. And I want us to notice something about the words of the servant and the words of the Lord. We think about words and language. Some language is simply informative. Just for information. If I said my name is uh, Will Snyder, that's just informative. You then have language that's conversational. Two people conversing. How are you? I'm, I'm doing quite fine, thank you. But then there's language and words that are, uh, we might say, performative. The language or words perform something. They perform an action. They bring about something. There's at least two places we can easily see this happen. At a wedding, the officiant says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. You may kiss your bride. That happens. At a baptism, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Those are words that are performing or bringing something about. When the servant speaks, when the Lord speaks, His word is like seed. 
It has life, like seed going into the earth. It creates life in all kinds of ways. Creating understanding, creating hope, creating assurance, creating conviction, creating encouragement. We think of our Lord Jesus' words, My sheep hear My voice. They hear My words. They listen. They follow. I give them life. His Word moves and causes His people to follow, to know Him, to love Him, to be about Him. Finally, and perhaps most comforting of all, the Lord will never forget His people. However small or insignificant we may feel our lives to be at times, the Lord is fully attentive to your life. Verse 14, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Imagine moms, dads with young children. You're at the grocery store. You've got your infant in one arm. You put them down just momentarily to take the item off the shelf to put it in the cart. And you take your cart and you just move along. You, you've forgotten your child. Would, has that ever happened? Don't answer that. It actually does happen, at least momentarily. Even moms and dads' attention may be distracted to a degree for a time, but not so with our Lord. Not so with our Lord toward His people. So many are the places we could go. Jesus' words, I, I am with you always to the end of the age. Literally, I am with you all the days till the end of time. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Tattooed. Engraved. Listen to Spurgeon's words regarding uh, this uh, verse 14 or 16. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Spurgeon says, Though God's people say the Lord has forsaken me and my God has forgotten me, how amazed the divine mind seems to be at this wicked unbelief. What can be more astounding than the unfounded doubts and fears of God's favored people? The Lord's loving word of rebuke should make us blush. He cries, how can I have forgotten you when I have engraved you on the palms of my hands? How darest you doubt my constant remembrance when you are set upon my very flesh? He keeps His promise a thousand times. And yet the next trial makes us doubt Him. He never fails. He is never a dry well. He is never as a setting sun or a passing meteor or a melting vapor. And yet we are as continually vexed with anxieties and disturbed with fears. Behold, that word in 16, behold, he says, is a word intended to excite admiration. Here indeed we have a theme for marveling. I have engraved you. He does not say, I have engraved your name. I have engraved you. I have graven your person, your image, your case, your circumstances, your sins, your temptations, your weaknesses, your wants, your works. I have engraved you. Everything about you 
all that concerns you, all of you. Will you ever say again that your God has forsaken you when He has engraved you upon the palms of His hands? Paul, the Apostle, quotes verse 8 in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I've answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Paul writes, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Uh, this whole servant song is filled with the grace of God. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. And then Paul quotes, from the passage. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And then Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time. Now, Paul says, is the day of salvation. How true that is. Each and every day. Today is the day. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Don't let today, don't let this season that you are in in life pass you by without receiving and embracing the grace of God in Jesus Christ in all of its fullness that we see manifested here in this text. The hope that He offers, the comfort that He, that he offers, that we would draw near to Him. This One who has engraved us on the palms of His hands and how it points us to the marks on the Lord Jesus' body pierced for us crushed for us, uh, the man of sorrows upon the cross. Might we pursue Him with all uh, that we are. Let's pray. Lord, how we thank You for the depth of Your grace. Oh, how Your Word is a tremendous source of encouragement to our souls as we look to You, as we meditate upon it, as, as it washes over us. Lord, today is a day of Your favor. You've extended and offered salvation in its fullness to be reconciled to You, part of Your family, filled with hope for what we have as Your covenant people. Lord, how we thank You that, that You have come in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel God with us. And just as You have come in Your incarnation, in Your first coming, we have confidence and full assurance that You will come again. Fill our hearts, Lord, with hope and with comfort. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind and heart to behold the glory and the wonder of this servant who has come for us. For this we pray in His name. Amen.